Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 2 of Chapter 5 of Grim Tales by Edith Nesbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. From the Dead. Part 2. I went into the house, walked to the fire, and held out my hands to it mechanically, for though the night was May, I was cold to the bone. There were some folks standing round the fire, and lights flickering. Then an old woman came forward with the northern instinct of hospitality. Thou'rt tired, she said, and mazed-like. Have a sup of tea. I burst out laughing. It was too funny. I had travelled two hundred miles to see her, and she was dead and they offered me tea. They drew back from me as if I had been a wild beast, but I could not stop laughing. Then a hand was laid on my shoulder, and someone led me into a dark room, lighted a lamp, set me in a chair, and sat down opposite me. It was a bare parlour, coldly furnished with rush chairs and much-polished tables and presses. I caught my breath, and grew suddenly grave and looked at the woman who sat opposite me. "'I was Miss Ida's nurse,' said she, and she told me to send for you. Who are you?' "'Her husband!' The woman looked at me with hard eyes, where intense surprise struggled with resentment. "'Then may God forgive you,' she said. "'What you've done I don't know, but it'll be hard work forgiving you, even for him.' "'Tell me,' I said, "'my wife.' tell you the bitter contempt in the woman's tone did not hurt me what was it to the self-contempt that had gnawed my heart all these months tell you yes i'll tell you your wife was that ashamed of you she never so much as told me she was married she let me think anything i pleased sooner than that she just come here and she said nurse take care of me for i am in mortal trouble and don't let them know where i am says she and me being well married to an honest man, and well to do here, I was able to do it by the blessing. Why didn't you send for me before? It was a cry of anguish wrung from me. I'd never a sent for you. It was her doing. Oh, to think as God Almighty made men able to measure out such like pecks of trouble for us women folk. Young man, I don't know what you did to her to make her leave you but it must have been something cruel, for she loved the ground you walked on. She used to sit day after day looking at your picture, and talking to it, and kissing of it, when she thought I wasn't taking no notice, and crying till she made me cry too. She used to cry all night, most, and one day, when I tells her to pray to God to help her through her trouble, she outs with your pretty face on a card, she does, and says she with her poor little smile, that's my god nursey she says don't i said feebly putting out my hands to keep off the torture not any more not now don't she repeated she had risen and was walking up and down the room with clasped hands 
don't indeed no i won't but i shan't forget you i tell you i've had you in my prayers time and again when i thought you'd made a lighter love of my darling i shan't drop you out of them now i know she was your own wedded wife as you chucked away when you'd tired of her and left her to eat her heart out with longing for you oh, i pray to god above us to pay you scot and lot for all you done to her you killed my pretty the price will be required of you young man even to the uttermost farthing oh, god in heaven make him suffer make him feel it she stamped her foot as she passed me i stood quite still i bit my lip till i tasted the blood hot and salt on my tongue she was nothing to you cried the woman walking faster up and down between the rush chairs and the table any fool can see that with half an eye you didn't love her so you don't feel nothing now but some day you'll care for someone and then you shall know what she felt if there's any justice in heaven i too walked across the room and leaned against the wall i heard her words without understanding them can't you feel nothing are you made a stone come and look at her lying there so quiet she don't fret out of the likes of you no more now she won't sit no more a-looking out her window and saying nothing only dropping her tears one by one slow slow on her lap come and see her come and see what you've done to my pretty and then you can go nobody wants you here she don't want you now but perhaps you'd like to see her safe underground first i'll be bound you'd put a big slab on her to make sure she don't rise again i turned on her her thin face was white with grief and impotent rage her claw-like hands were clenched woman i said have mercy she paused and looked at me hey she said have mercy i said again mercy you should have thought of that before you hadn't no mercy on her she loved you she died loving you and if i wasn't a christian woman i'd kill you for it like the rat you are that i would though i had to swing for it afterwards i caught the woman's hands and held them fast in spite of her resistance don't you understand i said savagely we loved each other she died loving me i have to live loving her and it's her you pity i tell you it was all a mistake a stupid stupid mistake take me to her and for pity's sake let me be left alone with her she hesitated then said in a voice only a shade less hard well come along then we moved towards the door as she opened it a faint weak cry fell on my ear my heart stood still what's that i asked stopping on the threshold your child she said shortly that too oh my love oh my poor love all these long months she always said she'd send for you when she got over her trouble the woman said as we climbed the stairs i'd like him to see his little baby nurse she says our little baby he'll be all right when the baby's born she says i know he'll come to me then you'll see and i never said nothing not thinking you'd come if she was your leavings and not dreaming as you could be her husband and could stay away from her an hour her being as she was hush she drew a key from her pocket and fitted it to the lock she opened the door and i followed her in 
It was a large, dark room, full of old-fashioned furniture. There were wax candles in brass candlesticks, and a smell of lavender. The big, four-post bed was covered with white. "'My lamb, my poor pretty lamb,' said the woman, beginning to cry for the first time, as she drew back the sheet. "'Don't she look beautiful?' I stood by the bedside. I looked down on my wife's face. Just so I had seen it lie on the pillow beside me in the early morning, when the wind and the dawn came up from beyond the sea. She did not look like one dead. Her lips were still red, and it seemed to me that a tinge of colour lay on her cheek. It seemed to me, too, that if I kissed her she would wake, and put her slight hand on my neck, and lay her cheek against mine, and that we should tell each other everything, and weep together and understand and be comforted. So I stooped and laid my lips to hers as the old nurse stole from the room. But the red lips were like marble, and she did not wake. She will not wake now ever any more. I tell you again, there are some things that cannot be written. End of part two of From the Dead Part three of Chapter five of Grim Tales by Edith Nesbit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. From the Dead. Part three. I lay that night in a big room filled with heavy dark furniture, in a great four poster hung with heavy dark curtains, a bed the counterpart of that other bed from whose side they had dragged me at last. They fed me, I believe, and the old nurse was kind to me. I think she saw now that it is not the dead who are to be pitied most. I lay at last in the big roomy bed, and heard the household noises grow fewer, and die out, the little wail of my child sounding latest. They had brought the child to me, and I had held it in my arms, and bowed my head over its tiny face and frail fingers. I did not love it then. I told myself it had cost me her life, but my heart told me that it was I who had done that. The tall clock at the stairhead sounded the hours, eleven, twelve, one, and still I could not sleep. The room was dark and very still. I had not been able to look at my life quietly. I had been full of the intoxication of grief, a real drunkenness more merciful than the calm that comes after. Now I lay still as the dead woman in the next room, and looked at what was left of my life. I lay still, and thought, and thought, and thought, and in those hours I tasted the bitterness of death. It must have been about two that I first became aware of a slight sound that was not the ticking of the clock. I say I first became aware, and yet I knew perfectly that I had heard that sound more than once before, and had yet determined not to hear it, because it came from the next room, the room where the corpse lay. And I did not wish to hear that sound, because I knew it meant that I was nervous, miserably nervous, a coward and a brute. It meant that I, having killed my wife as surely as though I had put a knife in her breast, had now sunk so low as to be afraid of her dead body. 
the dead body that lay in the room next to mine. The heads of the beds were placed against the same wall, and from that wall I had fancied I heard slight, slight, almost inaudible sounds. So when I say that I became aware of them, I mean that I at last heard a sound so distinct as to leave no room for doubt or question. It brought me to a sitting position in the bed, and the drops of sweat gathered heavily on my forehead and fell on my cold hands as I held my breath and listened. I don't know how long I sat there. There was no further sound, and at last my tense muscles relaxed, and I fell back on the pillow. "'You fool!' I said to myself. "'Dead or alive, is she not your darling, your heart's heart? Would you not go near to die of joy if she came to you? Pray God to let her spirit come back and tell you she forgives you.' "'I wish she would come,' myself answered in words while every fibre of my body and mind shrank and quivered in denial. I struck a match, lighted a candle, and breathed more freely as I looked at the polished furniture, the commonplace details of an ordinary room. Then I thought of her lying alone so near me, so quiet under the white sheet. She was dead. She would not wake or move. But suppose she did move. Suppose she turned back the sheet and got up and walked across the floor and turned the door-handle. As I thought it, I heard, plainly, unmistakably heard, the door of the chamber of death open slowly. I heard slow steps in the passage, slow, heavy steps. I heard the touch of hands on my door outside, uncertain hands that felt for the latch. Sick with terror, I lay clenching the sheet in my hands. I knew well enough what would come in when that door opened, that door on which my eyes were fixed. I dreaded to look, yet I dared not turn away my eyes. The door opened slowly, 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 and the figure of my dead wife came in. It came straight towards the bed, and stood at the bedfoot in its white grave-clothes, with the white bandage under its chin. There was a scent of lavender. Its eyes were wide open, and looked at me with love unspeakable. I could have shrieked aloud. My wife spoke. It was the same dear voice that I had loved so to hear, but it was very weak and faint now, and now I trembled as I listened. "'You aren't afraid of me, darling, are you? Though I am dead. I heard all you said to me when you came, but I couldn't answer. But now I've come back from the dead to tell you. I wasn't really so bad as you thought me. Elvir had told me she loved Oscar. I only wrote the letter to make it easier for you. I was too proud to tell you when you were so angry, but I'm not proud any more now. You'll love me again now, won't you, now I'm dead? One always forgives dead people." The poor ghost's voice was hollow and faint. Abject terror paralyzed me. I could answer nothing. "'Say you forgive me,' the thin, monotonous voice went on. "'Say you love me again.' I had to speak, coward as I was. I did manage to stammer. Y "'Yes, I love you. I have always loved you. God help me.' The sound of my own voice reassured me, and I ended more firmly than I began. The figure by the bed swayed a little unsteadily. "'I suppose,' she said wearily, 
you would be afraid now i am dead if i came round to you and kissed you she made a movement as though she would have come to me then i did shriek aloud again and again and covered my face with the sheet and wound it round my head and body and held it with all my force there was a moment's silence then i heard my door close and then a sound of feet and of voices and i heard something heavy fall i disentangled my head from the sheet my room was empty then reason came back to me i leapt from the bed ida my darling come back i'm not afraid i love you come back come back i sprang to my door and flung it open someone was bringing a light along the passage on the floor outside the door of the death chamber was a huddled heap the corpse in its grave clothes dead 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 she is buried in mellor churchyard and there is no stone over her now whether it was catalepsy as the doctors said or whether my love came back even from the dead to me who loved her i shall never know but this i know that if i had held out my arms to her as she stood at my bedfoot if i had said yes even from the grave my darling from hell itself come back come back to me if i had had room in my coward's heart for anything but the unreasoning terror that killed love in that hour i should not now be here alone i shrank from her i feared her i would not take her to my heart and now she will not come to me any more why do i go on living you see there is the child it is four years old now and it has never spoken and never smiled end of part three of from the dead chapter six of grim tales by edith nesbit this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by peter yearsley man sighs in marble although every word of this story is as true as despair i do not expect people to believe it nowadays a rational explanation is required before belief is possible let me then at once offer the rational explanation which finds most favour among those who have heard the tale of my life's tragedy it is held that we were under a delusion laura and i on that thirty-first of october and that this supposition places the whole matter on a satisfactory and believable basis the reader can judge when he too has heard my story how far this is an explanation and in what sense it is rational there were three who took part in this laura and i and another man the other man still lives and can speak to the truth of the least credible part of my story i never in my life knew what it was to have as much money as i required to supply the most ordinary needs good colours books and cab fares and when we were married we knew quite well that we should only be able to live at all by strict punctuality and attention to business i used to paint in those days and laura used to write and we felt sure we could keep the pot at least simmering living in town was out of the question so we went to look for a cottage in the country which should be at once sanitary and picturesque 
so rarely do these two qualities meet in one cottage that our search was for some time quite fruitless we tried advertisements but most of the desirable rural residences which we did look at proved to be lacking in both essentials and when a cottage chanced to have drains it always had stucco as well and was shaped like a tea caddy and if we found a vine or rose-covered porch corruption invariably lurked within our minds got so befogged by the eloquence of house-agents and the rival disadvantages of the fever-traps and outrages to beauty which we had seen and scorned that i very much doubt whether either of us on our wedding morning knew the difference between a house and a haystack but when we got away from friends and house-agents on our honeymoon our wits grew clear again and we knew a pretty cottage when at last we saw one it was at Brenzett, a little village set on a hill over against the southern marshes we had gone there from the seaside village where we were staying to see the church and two fields from the church we found this cottage it stood quite by itself about two miles from the village it was a long low building with rooms sticking out in unexpected places there was a bit of stonework ivy-covered and moss-grown just two old rooms all that was left of a big house that had once stood there and round this stonework the house had grown up stripped of its roses and jasmine it would have been hideous as it stood it was charming and after a brief examination we took it it was absurdly cheap the rest of our honeymoon we spent in grubbing about in second-hand shops in the county town picking up bits of old oak and chippendale chairs for our furnishings we wound up with a run up to town and a visit to liberties and soon the low oak-beamed lattice-windowed rooms began to be home there was a jolly old-fashioned garden with grass paths and no end of hollyhocks and sunflowers and big lilies from the window you could see the marsh pastures and beyond them the blue thin line of the sea we were as happy as the summer was glorious and settled down into work sooner than we ourselves expected i was never tired of sketching the view and the wonderful cloud effects from the open lattice and laura would sit at the table and write verses about them in which i mostly played the part of foreground we got a tall old peasant woman to do for us her face and figure were good though her cooking was of the homeliest but she understood all about gardening and told us all the old names of the copses and cornfields and the stories of the smugglers and highwaymen and better still of the things that walked and of the sights which met one in lonely glens of a starlight night she was a great comfort to us because laura hated housekeeping as much as i loved folklore and we soon came to leave all the domestic business to mrs dorman and to use her legends in little magazine stories which brought in the jingling guinea we had three months of married happiness and did not have a single quarrel one october evening i had been down to smoke a pipe with the doctor our only neighbour a pleasant young irishman laura had stayed at home to finish a comic sketch of a village episode for the monthly marplot i left her laughing over her own jokes and came in 
to find her a crumpled heap of pale muslin, weeping on the window-seat. "'Good heavens, my darling! What's the matter?' I cried, taking her in my arms. She leaned her little dark head against my shoulder, and went on crying. I had never seen her cry before. We had always been so happy, you see, and I felt sure some frightful misfortune had happened. "'What is the matter? Do speak. It's Mrs. Dorman,' she sobbed. "'What has she done?' I inquired, immensely relieved. "'She says she must go before the end of the month. And she says her niece is ill. She's gone down to see her now, but I don't believe that's the reason, because her niece is always ill. I believe someone has been setting her against us. Her manner was so queer.' "'Never mind, Pussy,' I said. "'Whatever you do, don't cry, or I shall have to cry too, to keep you in countenance.' and then you'll never respect your man again." She dried her eyes obediently on my handkerchief, and even smiled faintly. "'But you see,' she went on, "'it is really serious, because these village people are so sheepy, and if one won't do a thing, you may be quite sure none of the others will. And I shall have to cook the dinners, and wash up the hateful greasy plates, and you'll have to carry cans of water about, and clean the boots and knives and we shall never have any time for work, or earn any money, or anything. We shall have to work all day, and only be able to rest when we are waiting for the kettle to boil." I represented to her that, even if we had to perform these duties, the day would still present some margin for other toils and recreations, but she refused to see the matter in any but the greyest light. She was very unreasonable, my Laura, but I could not have loved her any more if she had been as reasonable as Waitley. "'I'll speak to Mrs. Dorman when she comes back, and see if I can't come to terms with her,' I said. "'Perhaps she wants a rise in her screw. It'll be all right. Let's walk up to the church.' The church was a large and lonely one, and we loved to go there, especially upon bright nights. The path skirted a wood, cut through it once, and ran along the crest of the hill through two meadows and round the churchyard wall, over which the old yews loomed in black masses of shadow. This path, which was partly paved, was called the beer-balk, for it had long been the way by which the corpses had been carried to burial. The churchyard was richly treed, and was shaded by great elms, which stood just outside, and stretched their majestic arms in benediction over the happy dead. A large, low porch, let one into the building by a Norman doorway and a heavy oak door studded with iron. Inside the arches rose into darkness, and between them the reticulated windows which stood out white in the moonlight. In the chancel the windows were of rich glass, which showed in faint light their noble colouring, and made the black oak of the choir pews hardly more solid than the shadows. But on each side of the altar lay a grey marble figure of a knight in full-plate armour, lying upon a low slab, with hands held up in everlasting prayer. And these figures, oddly enough, were always to be seen if there was any glimmer of light in the church. Their names were lost, but the peasants told of them that they had been fierce and wicked men, marauders by land and sea, who had been the scourge of their time, and had been guilty of deeds so foul that the house they had lived in the big house, by the way, that had stood on the site of our cottage, 
had been stricken by lightning and the vengeance of heaven. But for all that the gold of their heirs had bought them a place in the church. Looking at the bad, hard faces reproduced in the marble, this story was easily believed. The church looked at its best and weirdest on that night, for the shadows of the yew-trees fell through the windows upon the floor of the nave, and touched the pillars with tattered shade. We sat down together without speaking, and watched the solemn beauty of the old church, with some of the awe which inspired its early builders. We walked to the chancel, and looked at the sleeping warriors. Then we rested some time on the stone seat in the porch, looking out over the stretch of quiet, moonlit meadows, feeling in every fibre of our being the peace of the night, and of our happy love, and came away at last with a sense that even scrubbing and blackleading were but small troubles at their worst. Mrs. Dorman had come back from the village, and I at once invited her to a tete-a-tete. "'Now, Mrs. Dorman,' I said, when I had got her into my painting-room, "'what's all this about your not staying with us?' "'I should be glad to get away, sir, before the end of the month,' she answered, with her usual placid dignity. "'Have you any fault to find, Mrs. Dorman?' "'None at all, sir. You and your lady have always been most kind, I'm sure.' "'Well, what is it? Are your wages not high enough?' "'No, sir. I get quite enough.' "'Then why not stay?' "'I'd rather not.' With some hesitation, "'My niece is ill.' "'But your niece has been ill ever since we came.' No answer. There was a long and awkward silence. I broke it. "'Can't you stay for another month?' I asked. "'No, sir. I'm bound to go by Thursday.' "'And this was Monday.' "'Well, I must say, I think you might have let us know before.' There's no time now to get any one else, and your mistress is not fit to do heavy housework. Can't you stay till next week? I might be able to come back next week. I was now convinced that all she wanted was a brief holiday, which we should have been willing enough to let her have, as soon as we could get a substitute. But why must you go this week? I persisted. Come, out with it. Mrs. Dorman drew the little shawl which she always wore tightly across her bosom, as though she were cold. Then she said, with a sort of effort, "'They say, sir, as this was a big house in Catholic times, and there was a many deeds done here.' The nature of the deeds might be vaguely inferred from the inflection of Mrs. Dorman's voice, which was enough to make one's blood run cold. I was glad that Laura was not in the room. She was always nervous, as highly strung natures are, and I felt that these tales about our house, told by this old peasant woman with her impressive manner and contagious credulity, might have made our home less dear to my wife. "'Tell me all about it, Mrs. Dorman,' I said. "'You needn't mind about telling me. I'm not like the young people who make fun of such things.' which was partly true. Well, sir, she sank her voice. You may have seen in the church, beside the altar, two shapes. You mean the effigies of the knights in armour? I said cheerfully. I mean them two bodies, drawed out man-size in marble, she returned, 
and I had to admit that her description was a thousand times more graphic than mine, to say nothing of a certain weird force and uncanniness about the phrase drawed out man-size in marble. They do say, as on All Saints' Eve them two bodies sits up on their slabs and gets off of them, and then walks down the aisle in their marble. Another good phrase, Mrs. Dorman. And as the church clock strikes eleven, they walks out of the church door, and over the graves, and along the beer balk, and if it's a wet night, there's the marks of their feet in the morning. And where do they go? I asked, rather fascinated. They comes back here, to their home, sir, and if anyone meets them. Well, what then? I asked. But no, not another word could I get from her, save that her niece was ill and she must go. After what I had heard, I scorned to discuss the niece, and tried to get from Mrs. Dorman more details of the legend. I could get nothing but warnings. Whatever you do, sir, lock the door early on All Saints' Eve, and make the cross sign over the doorstep and on the windows. But has anyone ever seen these things? I persisted. That's not for me to say. I know what I know, sir. Well, who was here last year? No one, sir. The lady has owned the house only stayed here in summer, and she always went to London a full month before the night. And I'm sorry to inconvenience you and your lady, but my niece is ill, and I must go on Thursday. I could have shaken her for her absurd reiteration of that obvious fiction after she had told me her real reasons. She was determined to go nor could our united entreaties move her in the least. I did not tell Laura the legend of the shapes that walked in their marble, partly because a legend concerning our house might perhaps trouble my wife, and partly, I think, from some more occult reason. This was not quite the same to me as any other story, and I did not want to talk about it till the day was over. I had very soon ceased to think of the legend, however, I was painting a portrait of Laura, against the lattice window, and I could not think of much else. I had got a splendid background of yellow and grey sunset, and was working away with enthusiasm at her face. On Thursday Mrs. Dorman went. She relented at parting, so far as to say, "'Don't you put yourself about too much, ma'am, and if there's any little thing I can do next week, I'm sure I shan't mind.' from which I inferred that she wished to come back to us after Halloween. Up to the last she adhered to the fiction of the niece with touching fidelity. Thursday passed off pretty well. Laura showed marked ability in the matter of steak and potatoes, and I confess that my knives and the plates, which I insisted upon washing, were better done than I had dared to expect. Friday came. It is about what happened on that Friday that this is written. I wonder if I should have believed it, if anyone had told it to me. I will write the story of it as quickly and plainly as I can. Everything that happened on that day is burnt into my brain. I shall not forget anything, nor leave anything out. I got up early, I remember, and lighted the kitchen fire and had just achieved a smoky success 
when my little wife came running down as sunny and sweet as the clear october morning itself we prepared breakfast together and found it very good fun the housework was soon done and when brushes and brooms and pails were quiet again the house was still indeed it is wonderful what a difference one makes in a house we really missed mrs dorman quite apart from considerations concerning pots and pans we spent the day in dusting our books and putting them straight and dined gaily on cold steak and coffee laura was if possible brighter and gayer and sweeter than usual and i began to think that a little domestic toil was really good for her we had never been so merry since we were married and the walk we had that afternoon was i think the happiest time of all my life when we had watched the deep scarlet clouds slowly pale into leaden grey against a pale green sky and saw the white mists curl up along the hedgerows in the distant marsh we came back to the house silently hand in hand you're sad my darling i said half jestingly as we sat down together in our little parlour i expected a disclaimer for my own silence had been the silence of complete happiness to my surprise she said yes i think i am sad or rather i am uneasy i don't think i'm very well i have shivered three or four times since we came in and it is not cold is it no i said and hoped it was not a chill caught from the treacherous mists that roll up from the marshes in the dying light no she said she did not think so then after a silence she spoke suddenly do you ever have presentiments of evil no i said smiling and i shouldn't believe in them if i had i do she went on the night my father died i knew it though he was right away in the north of scotland i did not answer in words she sat looking at the fire for some time in silence gently stroking my hand at last she sprang up came behind me and drawing my head back kissed me there it's over now she said what a baby i am come light the candles and we'll have some of these new rubenstein duets and we spent a happy hour or two at the piano at about half-past ten i began to long for the good-night pipe but laura looked so white that i felt it would be brutal of me to fill our sitting-room with the fumes of strong cavendish i'll take my pipe outside i said let me come too no sweetheart not to-night you're much too tired i shan't be long get to bed or i shall have an invalid to nurse to-morrow as well as the boots to clean i kissed her and was turning to go when she flung her arms round my neck and held me as if she would never let me go again i stroked her hair come pussy you're over-tired the housework has been too much for you she loosened her clasp a little and drew a deep breath no we've been very happy to-day jack haven't we don't stay out too long i won't my dearie i strolled out of the front door leaving it unlatched what a night it was the jagged masses of heavy dark cloud were rolling at intervals from horizon to horizon and thin white wreaths covered the stars through all the rush of the cloud river the moon swam breasting the waves and disappearing again in the darkness when now and again her light reached the woodlands 
they seemed to be slowly and noiselessly waving in time to the swing of the clouds above them there was a strange grey light over all the earth the fields had that shadowy bloom over them which only comes from the marriage of dew and moonshine or frost and starlight i walked up and down drinking in the beauty of the quiet earth and the changing sky the night was absolutely silent nothing seemed to be abroad there was no scurrying of rabbits or twitter of the half-asleep birds and though the clouds went sailing across the sky the wind that drove them never came low enough to rustle the dead leaves in the woodland paths across the meadows i could see the church tower standing out black and grey against the sky i walked there thinking over our three months of happiness and of my wife her dear eyes her loving ways oh my little girl my own little girl what a vision came then of a long glad life for you and me together i heard a bell beat from the church eleven already i turned to go in but the night held me i could not go back into our little warm rooms yet i would go on up to the church i felt vaguely that it would be good to carry my love and thankfulness to the sanctuary whither so many loads of sorrow and gladness had been borne by the men and women of the dead years i looked in at the low window as i went by laura was half lying on her chair in front of the fire i could not see her face only her little head showed dark against the pale blue wall she was quite still asleep no doubt my heart reached out to her as i went on there must be a god i thought and a god who was good how otherwise could anything so sweet and dear as she have ever been imagined i walked slowly along the edge of the wood a sound broke the stillness of the night it was a rustling in the wood i stopped and listened the sound stopped too i went on and now distinctly heard another step than mine answer mine like an echo it was a poacher or a wood-stealer most likely for these were not unknown in our arcadian neighbourhood but whoever it was he was a fool not to step more lightly i turned into the wood and now the footstep seemed to come from the path i had just left it must be an echo i thought the wood looked perfect in the moonlight the large dying ferns and the brushwood showed where through thinning foliage the pale light came down the tree trunks stood up like gothic columns all around me they reminded me of the church and i turned into the beer bulk and passed through the corpse gate between the graves to the low porch i paused for a moment on the stone seat where laura and i had watched the fading landscape then i noticed that the door of the church was open and i blamed myself for having left it unlatched the other night we were the only people who ever cared to come to the church except on sundays and i was vexed to think that through our carelessness the damp autumn airs had had a chance of getting in and injuring the old fabric i went in it will seem strange perhaps that i should have gone halfway up the aisle before i remembered with a sudden chill followed by as sudden a rush of self-contempt that this was the very day and hour 
when, according to tradition, the shapes drawed out man-size in marble, began to walk. Having thus remembered the legend, and remembered it with a shiver, of which I was ashamed, I could not do otherwise than walk up towards the altar, just to look at the figures, as I said to myself. Really what I wanted was to assure myself, first, that I did not believe the legend, and secondly, that it was not true. I was rather glad that I had come. I thought now I could tell Mrs. Dorman how vain her fancies were, and how peacefully the marble figures slept on through the ghastly hour. With my hands in my pockets I passed up the aisle. In the grey dim light the eastern end of the church looked larger than usual, and the arches above the two tombs looked larger too. The moon came out and showed me the reason. I stopped short. My heart gave a leap that nearly choked me, and then sank sickeningly. The bodies drawed out man-size were gone, and their marble slabs lay wide and bare in the vague moonlight that slanted through the east window. Were they really gone, or was I mad? Clenching my nerves, I stooped and passed my hand over the smooth slabs, and felt their flat, unbroken surface. Had someone taken the things away? Was it some vile practical joke? I would make sure, anyway. In an instant I had made a torch of a newspaper which happened to be in my pocket, and lighting it held it high above my head. Its yellow glare illumined the dark arches and those slabs. The figures were gone, and I was alone in the church. Or was I alone? And then a horror seized me, a horror indefinable and indescribable, an overwhelming certainty of supreme and accomplished calamity. I flung down the torch and tore along the aisle and out through the porch, biting my lips as I ran, to keep myself from shrieking aloud. Oh, was I mad? Or what was this that possessed me? I leapt the churchyard wall and took the straight cut across the fields, led by the light from our windows. Just as I got over the first stile, a dark figure seemed to spring out of the ground. Mad still with that certainty of misfortune, I made for the thing that stood in my path, shouting, Get out of the way, can't you? But my push met with a more vigorous resistance than I had expected. My arms were caught just above the elbow and held as in a vice, and the raw-boned Irish doctor actually shook me. Would you? he cried, in his own unmistakable accents. Would you, then? Let me go, you fool! I gasped. The marble figures have gone from the church. I tell you they've gone. He broke into a ringing laugh. I'll have to give you a draught tomorrow, I see. You've been smoking too much and listening to old wives' tales. I tell you I've seen the bare slabs. Well, come back with me. I'm going up to old Palmer's. His daughter's ill. We'll look in at the church and let me see the bare slabs. You go if you like, I said, a little less frantic for his laughter. I'm going home to my wife. Rubbish, man said he. Do you think I'll permit of that? Are you to go saying all your life that you've seen solid marble endowed with vitality, and me to go me life saying you are a coward? No, sir, you shan't do it. The night air, a human voice, and I think also the physical contact with this six feet of solid common sense, brought me back a little to my ordinary self, and the word coward was a mental shower-bath. Come on, then, I said sullenly. Perhaps you're right. He still held my arm tightly. 
we got over the stile and back to the church all was still as death the place smelt very damp and earthy we walked up the aisle i am not ashamed to confess that i shut my eyes i knew the figures would not be there i heard kelly strike a match here they are you see right enough you've been dreaming or drinking asking your pardon for the imputation i opened my eyes by kelly's expiring vesta i saw two shapes lying in their marble on their slabs i drew a deep breath and caught his hand i'm awfully indebted to you i said it must have been some trick of light or i have been working rather hard perhaps that's it do you know i was quite convinced they were gone i'm aware of that he answered rather grimly you'll have to be careful of that brain of yours my friend i assure you he was leaning over and looking at the right-hand figure whose stony face was the most villainous and deadly in expression by jove he said something has been afoot here this hand is broken and so it was i was certain that it had been perfect the last time laura and i had been there perhaps someone has tried to remove them said the young doctor that won't account for my impression i objected too much painting and tobacco will account for that well enough come along i said or my wife will be getting anxious you'll come in and have a drop of whisky and drink confusion to ghosts and better sense to me i ought to go up to palmer's but it's so late now i'd best leave it till the morning he replied i was kept late at the union and i've had to see a lot of people since all right i'll come back with you i think he fancied i needed him more than did palmer's girl so discussing how such an illusion could have been possible and deducing from this experience large generalities concerning ghostly apparitions we walked up to our cottage we saw as we walked up the garden path that bright light streamed out of the front door and presently saw that the parlour door was open too had she gone out come in i said and dr kelly followed me into the parlour it was all ablaze with candles not only the wax ones but at least a dozen guttering glaring tallow dips stuck in vases and ornaments in unlikely places light i knew was laura's remedy for nervousness poor child why had i left her brute that i was we glanced round the room and at first we did not see her the window was open and the draught set all the candles flaring one way her chair was empty and her handkerchief and book lay on the floor i turned to the window there in the recess of the window i saw her oh my child my love had she gone to that window to watch for me and what had come into the room behind her to what had she turned with that look of frantic fear and horror oh my little one had she thought that it was i whose step she heard and turned to meet what she had fallen back across a table in the window and her body lay half on it and half on the window-seat and her head hung down over the table the brown hair loosened and falling to the carpet her lips were drawn back and her eyes wide wide open they saw nothing now what had they seen last the doctor moved towards her but i pushed him aside and sprang to her caught her in my arms and cried it's all right laura i've got you safe wifey she fell into my arms in a heap i clasped her and kissed her and called her by all her pet names 
but I think I knew all the time that she was dead. Her hands were tightly clenched. In one of them she held something fast. When I was quite sure she was dead, and that nothing mattered at all any more, I let him open her hand to see what she held. It was a grey marble finger. The End of Chapter 6「Chapter Seven of Grim Tales by Edith Nesbit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Mass for the Dead. I was awake, widely, cruelly awake. I had been awake all night. What sleep could there be for me when the woman I loved was to be married next morning? Married and not to me. I went to my room early. The family party in the drawing-room maddened me. Grouped about the round table with the stamped plush cover, each was busy with work or book or newspaper, but not too busy to stab my heart through and through with their talk of the wedding. Her people were near neighbours of mine, so why should her marriage not be canvassed in my home circle? They did not mean to be cruel. They did not know that I loved her, but she knew it. I told her, but she knew it before that. She knew it from the moment when I came back from three years of musical study in Germany, came back and met her in the wood where we used to go nutting when we were children. I looked into her eyes, and my whole soul trembled with thankfulness that I was living in a world that held her also. I turned and walked by her side through the tangled green wood, and we talked of the long-ago days, and it was have you forgotten? And do you remember? Till we reached her garden gate. Then I said, Goodbye. No, auf Wiedersehen. And in a very little time, I hope. And she answered, Goodbye. By the way, you haven't congratulated me yet. Congratulated you? Yes. Did I not tell you I am to marry Mr. Benoliel next month? And she turned away and went up the garden slowly. I asked my people, and they said it was true. Kate, my dear playfellow, was to marry this Spaniard, rich, willful, accustomed to win, polished in manners and base in life. Why was she to marry him? No one knows, said my father. But her father is talked about in the city, and Benoliel, the Spaniard, is rich. Perhaps that's it. That was it. She told me so, when, after two weeks spent with her and near her, I implored her to break so vile a chain, and to come to me, who loved her, whom she loved. "'You are quite right,' she said calmly. We were sitting in the window-seat of the oak parlour in her father's desolate old house. "'I do love you, and I shall marry Mr. Benoliel. Why? Look around you and ask me why, if you can.' I looked around, on the shabby, bare room, with its faded hangings of sage-green marine, its threadbare carpet, its patched, washed-out chintz chair-covers. I looked out through the square latticed window at the ragged, unkempt lawn, at her own gown, of poor material, though she wore it as queens might desire to wear ermine, and I understood. 
Kate is obstinate. It is her one fault. I knew how vain would be my entreaties, yet I offered them. How unavailing my arguments, yet they were set forth. How useless my love and my sorrow, yet I showed them to her. No, she answered, but she flung her arms round my neck as she spoke, and held me as one may hold one's best treasure. No, no, you are poor and he is rich. You wouldn't have me break my father's heart. He's so proud, and if he doesn't get some money next month, he will be ruined. I'm not deceiving anyone. Mr. Benoliel knows I don't care for him, and if I marry him, he is going to advance my father a large sum of money. Oh, I assure you that everything has been talked over and settled. There is no going from it. Child, child, I cried, how calmly you speak of it. Don't you see that you're selling your soul? and throwing mine away father fabian says i am doing right she answered unclasping her hands but holding mine in them and looking at me with those clear grey eyes of hers are we to be unselfish in everything else and in love to think only of our own happiness i love you and i shall marry him would you rather the positions were reversed yes i said for then i would make you love me perhaps he will she said bitterly even in that moment her mouth trembled with the ghost of a smile she always loved to tease she goes through more moods in a day than most other women in a year drowning the smile came tears but she controlled them and she said good-bye you see i am right don't you oh jasper i wish i hadn't told you i loved you it will only make you more unhappy it makes my one happiness i answered nothing can take that from me and that happiness he will never have say again that you love me i love you i love you i love you with further folly of tears and mad loving words we parted and i bore my heartache away leaving her to bear hers into her new life and now she was to be married to-morrow, and I could not sleep. When the darkness became unbearable, I lighted a candle, and then lay staring vacantly at the roses on the wallpaper, or following with my eyes the lines and curves of the heavy mahogany furniture. The solidity of my surroundings oppressed me. In the dull light the wardrobe loomed like a hearse, and my violin-case looked like a child's coffin. I reached a book, and read till my eyes ached, and the letters danced a pas fantastique up and down the page. I got up and had ten minutes with the dumbbells. I sponged my face and hands with cold water and tried again to sleep, vainly. I lay there, miserably wide awake. I tried to say poetry, the half-forgotten tasks of my school-days even but through everything ran the refrain kate is to be married to-morrow and not to me not to me i tried counting up to a thousand i tried to imagine sheep in a lane and to count them as they jumped through a gap in an imaginary hedge all the time-honoured spells with which sleep is wooed vainly then the waits came and a torture to the nerves was superadded to the torture of the heart 
after fifteen minutes of carols every fibre of me seemed vibrating in an agony of physical misery to banish the echo of the mistletoe bough i hummed softly to myself a melody of palestrina's and felt more awake than ever then the thing happened which nothing will ever explain as i lay there i heard breaking through and gradually overpowering the air i was suggesting a harmony which i had never heard before beautiful beyond description and as distinct and definite as any song man's ears have ever listened to my first half-formed thought was more weights but the music was choral music true and sweet with it mingled an organ's notes and with every note the music grew in volume it is absurd to suggest that i dreamed it for still hearing the music i leapt out of bed and opened the window the music grew fainter there was no one to be seen in the snowy garden below shivering i shut the window the music grew more distinct and i became aware that i was listening to a mass a funeral mass and one which i had never heard before i lay in my bed and followed the whole course of the office the music ceased i was sitting up in bed my candle alight and myself as wide awake as ever and more than ever possessed by the thought of her but with a difference before i had only mourned the loss of her now my thoughts of her were mingled with an indescribable dread the sense of death and decay that had come to me with that strange beautiful music coloured all my thoughts i was filled with fancies of hushed houses black garments rooms where white flowers and white linen lay in a deathly stillness i heard echoes of tears and of dim-voiced bells tolling monotonously i shivered as it were on the brink of irreparable woe and in its contemplation i watched the dull dawn slowly overcome the pale flame of my candle now burnt down into its socket i felt that i must see kate once again before she gave herself away before ten o'clock i was in the oak parlour she came to me as she entered the room her pallor her swollen eyelids and the misery in her eyes wrung my heart as even that night of agony had not done i literally could not speak i held out my hands would she reproach me for coming to her again for forcing upon her a second time the anguish of parting she did not she laid her hands in mine and said i'm thankful you have come do you know i think i am going mad don't let me go mad jasper the look in her eyes underlined her words i stammered something and kissed her hands i was with her again and joy fought again with grief i must tell someone if i am mad don't lock me up take care of me won't you would i not understand she went on it was not a dream i was wide awake thinking of you the waits had not long gone and i i was looking at your likeness i was not asleep i shivered as i held her fast as heaven sees us i did not dream it i heard a mass sung and jasper it was a mass for the dead i followed the office you are not a catholic but i thought i feared oh i don't know what i thought i am thankful there is nothing wrong with you 
I felt a sudden certainty and complete sense of power possess me. Now, in this her moment of weakness, while she was so completely under the influence of a strong emotion, I could and would save her from Benoliel and myself from lifelong pain. Kate, I said, I believe it is a warning. You shall not marry this man. You shall marry me and none other. She leaned her head against my shoulder. She seemed to have forgotten her father and all the reasons for her marriage with Benoliel. You don't think I'm mad, no? Then take care of me. Take me away. I feel safe with you. Thus all obstacles vanished in less time than the length of a lover's kiss. I dared not stop to consider the coincidence of supernatural warning, nor what it might mean. Face to face with crowned hope, I am proud to remember that common sense held her own. The room in which we were had a French window. I fetched her garden hat and a shawl from the hall, and we went out through the still white garden. We did not meet a soul. When we reached my father's garden, I took her in by the back way to the summer-house and left her, though I was half afraid to leave her, while I went into the house. I snatched my violin and cheque-book, took all my spare money, scrawled a line to my father, and rejoined her. Still no one had seen us. We walked to a station five miles away, and by the time Benoliel would reach the church, I was leaving Doctor's Commons with a special license in my pocket. Two hours later Kate was my wife, and we were quietly and prosaically eating our wedding breakfast in the dining-room of the Grand Hotel. "'And where shall we go?' I said. "'I don't know,' she answered, smiling. "'You have not too much money, have you?' "'Oh, dear me, yes. I'm not rich, but I'm not absolutely a church mouse.' "'Could we go to Devonshire?' she asked, twisting her new ring round and round. "'Devonshire?' Why, that is where— Yes, I know. Benoliel arranged to go there. Jasper, I am afraid of Benoliel. Then why— Foolish person, she answered. Do you think that Benoliel will be likely to go to Devonshire now? We went to Devonshire. I had had a small legacy a few months earlier, and I did not permit money cares to trouble my new and beautiful happiness. My only fear was that she would be saddened by thoughts of her father— but I am thankful to remember that in those first days she too was happy, so happy that there seemed to be hardly room in her mind for any thought but of me, and every hour of every day I said to my soul, but for that portent, whatever it boded, she might have been not my wife but his. The first four or five days of our marriage are flowers that memory keeps always fresh. Kate's face had recovered its wild rose bloom, and she laughed and sang and jested and enjoyed all our little daily adventures with the fullest, freest-hearted gaiety. Then I committed the supreme imbecility of my life, one of those acts of folly on which one looks back all one's life with a half-stamp of the foot and the unanswerable question, "'How on earth could I have been such a fool?' We were sitting in a little sitting-room, hideous in intention, but redeemed by blazing fire and the fact that two were there sitting hand in hand, gazing into the fire and talking of their future and of their love. 
there was nothing to trouble us no one had discovered our whereabouts and my wife's fear of benoliel's revenge seemed to have dissolved before the flame of our happiness and as we sat there peaceful and untroubled the imp of the perverse jogged my elbow as alas he does so often and i was moved to tell my wife that i too had heard that unearthly midnight music that her hearing of it was not as she had grown to think a mere nightmare a strange dream but something more strange more significant i told her that i had heard the mass for the dead and all the tale of that night she listened silently and i thought her strangely indifferent when i had finished she took her hand from mine and covered her face i believe it was a warning to us to flee temptation we ought never to have married oh my poor father her tone was one that i had never heard before its hopeless misery appalled me and justly for no arguments no entreaties no caresses could win my wife back to the mood of an hour before she tried to be cheerful but her gaiety was forced and her laughter stung my heart she spoke no more about the music and when i tried to reason with her about it she smiled a gloomy little smile and said i cannot be happy i will not be happy it is wrong i have been very selfish and wicked you think me very idiotic i know but i believe there is a curse on us we shall never be happy again don't you love me any more i asked like a fool love you she only repeated my words but i was satisfied on that score but those were miserable days we loved each other passionately yet our hours were spent like those of lovers on the eve of parting long long silences took the place of foolish little jokes and childish talk which happy lovers know and more than once waking in the night i heard my wife sobbing and feigned sleep with the bitter knowledge that i had no power to comfort her i knew that the thought of her father was with her always and that her anxiety about him grew day by day i wore myself out in trying to think of some way to divert her thoughts from him i could not indeed pay his debts but i could have him to live with us a much greater sacrifice and having a good connection both as a musician and composer i did not doubt that i could support her and him in comfort but kate had made up her mind that the disgrace of bankruptcy would break her father's heart and my kate is not easy to convince or persuade at torquay it occurred to me that perhaps it would be well for her to see a priest true father fabian had counselled her to marry benoliel but i could hardly believe that most priests would advise a girl to marry a bad man whom she did not love for the sake of any worldly gain whatsoever she received the suggestion with favour but without enthusiasm and we sought out a catholic church to make inquiries as we opened the outer door of the church we heard music and as we stood in the entrance and i laid my hand on the heavy inner door my other hand was caught by kate jasper she whispered it is the same some person opening the door behind us compelled us to move forward in another moment we stood in the dusky church stood hand in hand in dim daylight listening to the same music that each had heard in the lonely night on the eve of our wedding i put my arm round my wife and drew her back come away my darling 
I whispered. It is a funeral service. She turned her eyes on me. I must understand. I must see who it is. I shall go mad if you take me away now. I cannot bear any more. We walked up the aisle and placed ourselves as near as possible to the spot where the coffin lay, covered with flowers and with tapers burning about it. And we heard that music again, every note of it, the same that each had heard before. And when the service was over, I whispered to the sacristan, Whose music was that? Our organist's, he answered. It is the first time they've had it. Fine, wasn't it? Who is the... who was... who is being buried? Oh, a foreign gentleman, sir. They do say as his lady, as was to be, gave him a slip on his wedding day. And he'd given her father thousands, they say, if the truth was known. But what was he doing here? Well, that's the curious part, sir. To show his independence, what does he do but go the same tour he'd planned for his wedding trip? And there was a railway accident, and him and everyone in his carriage killed in a twinkling, so to speak. Lucky for the young lady, she was off with somebody else. The sacristan laughed softly to himself. Kate's fingers gripped my arm. What was his name? she asked. I would not have asked. I did not wish to hear it. Benoliel, said the sacristan. Curious name and curious tale. Everyone's talking of it. Everyone had something else to talk of when it was found that Benoliel's pride, which had permitted him to buy a wife, had shrunk from reclaiming the purchase money when the purchase was lost to him. And to the man who had been willing to sell his daughter, the retention of her price seemed perfectly natural. From the moment when she heard Benoliel's name on the sacristan's lips, all Kate's gaiety and happiness returned. She loved me, and she hated Benoliel. She was married to me, and he was dead, and his death was far more of a shock to me than to her. Women are curiously kind and curiously cruel, and she never could see why her father should not have kept the money. It is noteworthy that women, even the cleverest and the best of them, have no perception of what men mean by honour. How do I account for the music? My good critic, my business is to tell my story, not to account for it. And do I not pity Benoliel? Yes, I can afford now to pity most men, alive or dead. The End of The Mass for the Dead And The End of Grim Tales by Edith Nesbitt Recorded for LibriVox by Peter Yearsley Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.